I invite you now to turn and find in your Bibles the scripture passage we'll consider this morning, starting in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 28. And that can be found on page 1082 of our Pew Bibles that we have. If you're here with us last week, we mentioned that currently in the book of Isaiah, as we make our way through it, we find ourselves in a large section of the oracles against the nations. And so we find that through these oracles, God wants to fortify the lowly and forewarn the lofty, to lift up the humble and in that way humble those who are exalted in themselves. And since we have a long scripture passage, which we will read this morning, we'll read it in three parts, pausing along the way. Uh, Those three parts correspond to our three points this morning, the rod of refuge, the rejection of refuge, and the result of refuge. And so let's give our hearts attention to God's word. The first part, the rod of refuge in verses 28 to 32 of chapter 14. This oracle came in the year King Ahaz died. Do not rejoice, all you Philistines, that the rod that struck you is broken. From the root of that snake will spring up a viper. Its fruit will be a darting, venomous serpent. The poorest of the poor will find pasture, and the needy will lie down in safety. But your root I will destroy by famine. It will slay your survivors." Wail, O gate, howl, O city, melt away, all you Philistines. A cloud of smoke comes from the north, and there is not a straggler in its ranks. What answer shall be given to the envoys of that nation? The Lord has established Zion, and in her his afflicted people will find refuge. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May he add his blessing to it as we consider it this morning. Well, here at the opening of this prophecy, it starts with a historic event, the death of King Ahaz. And this is that same king, if you remember, if you were here with us a few weeks back, the same one who refused God's gracious gift of a sign, a sign of hope as the Assyrians were coming and attacking them from the north. And Ahaz, in that episode that we looked at, he refused to walk by faith and instead chose to make a political alliance with Assyria to protect themselves from the uh, Ephraim and Syrian uh, alliance that had formed. And so, in the wake of Ahaz's death, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, was the next king in Judah. And he was a relatively good king, we learn from other passages in scripture, like in 2 Kings chapter 18 to 7, or 7 to 8, we read this about some of his military and defensive accomplishments as king, which is related to our passage. It says, and the Lord was with him, Hezekiah. He was successful in whatever he undertook. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. So unlike his father before, in that sense, and from watchtower to fortified city, he defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory. And so he was a quite successful king in the southern kingdom of Judah. But despite his victories, during the whole Assyrian 
period, the Philistines were a constant threat to that southern kingdom of Judah. Philistia was Judah's next-door neighbor to the west of them on the shore of the Mediterranean Sea. And here, at the death of King Ahaz, we hear that the Philistines are rejoicing. They're rejoicing at the downfall of the Davidic kingship. Because, of course, King Ahaz and then Hezekiah, they represent that Davidic kingship, the lineage of David. And they say, basically, the rod of David has been struck down. It is broken. The one who struck us has broken. What does that refer to? Well, up until the death of King Ahaz, the sovereign independence of the Davidic kingship had remained intact. So there was a strong Davidic king on the throne in Judah. But from Ahaz onward, the Davidic king was just a vassal king. So a second-rate king that owed his allegiance to another. So the Philistines, who were once previously, many generations before, greatly defeated by King David, they're now happy to see that his dynasty is crumbling before their eyes. Now, If we take a step back and think if this was merely geopolitical politics, well, we would say, so what, right? Kingdoms rise and fall. This happens all the time. That's the way of the world. But we remember, right, that Israel's story in the Old Testament here is not just about one uh, particular ancient nation against another. It's not just ancient geopolitics here. Because God had attached his promises of salvation to the Davidic kingship. God had promised to bring the Savior of the world through David's lineage. That means that the Philistines here were not simply rejecting the downfall of a neighboring king and his dynasty. They were rejoicing rather at the apparent downfall of the king of kings, God himself, who had attached himself by way of promise to David and his offspring. And so this is a proud, arrogant boast against God himself. And Isaiah has a response to their boast, and it's a bit strange at first glance. He says, do not rejoice, all you Philistines, that the rod that struck you is broken. From the root of that snake will spring up a viper. Its fruit will be a darting, venomous serpent. So to understand this language that he's using here, we need to go back and remember the Exodus event with Moses and Israel there in Egypt under Pharaoh. With language here about a rod and a venomous snake, Isaiah is alluding to that old story of God's redemption. He's basically saying, remember how God told Moses to throw his shepherd's staff, his rod, down onto the ground in front of Pharaoh? And then what happened when it was thrown to the ground, there in the dust, it turned into what? a venomous viper, and that snake ate up all the competing powers that were before it. Well, Philistia, the rod of the Davidic dynasty may be thrown down and trampled upon, but God will turn that rod into a viper, a venomous serpent that will eat up every competing power. That's what Isaiah is getting at here. In other words, the Davidic king may be crushed today, but because of God's promises to David, God will raise up a son of David in time who will establish the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And that should serve sort of as a hyperlink there in the past, sending us forward to the cross of Christ 
Because there we see Jesus, the son of David, dead on a Roman cross. The rod of David never looked so weak, never looked so broken as Christ himself, there dying on the cross and breathing his last. And for a moment, the world rejoiced, thinking they had put an end to God's promises in his promised rule through his Messiah, through Jesus. But like Moses' rod thrown down before Pharaoh, Jesus was thrown down dead into the tomb, but he was raised up with new life, vibrant as a viper. And he swallowed up death itself, and now Jesus reigns victoriously, ready to put every competing power under his footstool. So we see that God has set his king in place to establish a new world order by the death and resurrection of Jesus, the son of David. And we find in this passage what God wants to do by way of that new world order, by way of his kingdom. Isaiah says, the poorest of the poor will find pasture and the needy will lie down in safety. How does this apply to us? Well, Jesus is leading the poorest of the poor to restful pasture and safety under his protection, but he will also destroy all who pursue his people mercilessly. And again, this should remind us of the Exodus event, right? The Israelites who had become the poorest of the poor, they had become slaves oppressed by Pharaoh. They were, they were there, and God came as their good shepherd and led them out of Egypt through the Red Sea for the purpose of giving them restful pasture and safe protection in his promised land. But what did God do with the merciless ones who pursued his people in hatred? What did God do to Pharaoh and his army who chased after them in arrogance and in pride? Well, God let the waters, the walls of waters, come crashing down upon them in their pride and their arrogance. And Isaiah here is reminding us of unchangeable truths that still apply today. This is how the immutable God, the one who does not change, this is how he operates. He loves to give poor sinners pasture and protection because they are hungry and defenseless. In other words, Poor sinners are the ones who realize they are in need of rescue and saving. He loves to comfort the afflicted, the downtrodden, and the bottom of life's heap. Why? Because they are the ones who are most aware of their need of God's grace. Does that describe you this morning? Are you poor and needy as a sinner? Are you afflicted by your own sin and the misery that exists in the world? Are you convinced of your need of saving? If that is you, there's good news here in the text. Even if you are thrown down and broken by the world as God did with Jesus, so too he will call you up out of the land of the dead and into the land of the living. God promises to all who trust in him this, that you will find pasture restful pasture for your souls, and you will lie down safely forevermore in his kingdom. Why? The Lord has established Zion, and in her his afflicted people will find refuge. That is the promise of the Lord. But that's not all. God also judges the oppressors we see in this text. And so, if you, if you rejoice at the demise of the church, that is, if you sit back 
and laugh as the world grows colder and darker and Christianity loses its influence in the world, well, be warned, if that is you, God's patience towards you will soon come to an end. He will not forever let his people be hated and oppressed by others. He will set things right in the end. And if you reject Jesus' way out of sin and misery, his exodus that he has provided through his own death and resurrection, well, the waters of God's final judgment will come and crush you in the end. So do not rejoice in evil. Take refuge in the rod of David that has risen from the dead. Part two. Let's move on. Isaiah 15, verses 1 to 16, to chapter 16, verse 14. This is a bit longer section. The rejection of refuge. An oracle concerning Moab. Our in Moab is ruined, destroyed in a night. Kir in Moab is ruined, destroyed in a night. Dibon goes up to its temple, to its high place to weep. Moab wails over Nebo and Mediba. Every head is shaved and every beard cut off. In the streets they wear sackcloth. On the roofs and in the public squares they all wail, prostrate with weeping. Heshbon and Elele cry out. Their voices are heard all the way to Jahaz. Therefore the armed men of Moab cry out and their hearts are faint. My heart cries out over Moab. Her fugitives flee as far as Zoar, as far as Eglath, Shalishayah. They go up all the way to Luith, weeping as they go on the road to Honoraim. They lament their destruction. The waters of Nimrim are dried up and the grass is withered. The vegetation is gone and nothing green is left. So the wealth they have acquired and stored up, they carry away over the ravine of the poplars. They outcry, the, their outcry echoes along the border of Moab. Their wailing reaches as far as Eglaim. Their lamentation as far as Beer, Elim. Dimon's waters are full of blood, but I will bring still more upon Dimon, a lion upon the fugitives of Moab and upon those who remain in the land Send lambs as tribute to the rulers of, le- of the land from Selah across the, the desert to the mount of the daughter Zion. Like fluttering birds pushed from the nest, so are the women of Moab at the fords of Arnon. Give us counsel, render a decision, make your shadow like night at high noon, hide the fugitives, do not betray the refuge. Let the Moabite fugitives stay with you, be their shelter from the destroyer. The oppressor will come to an end, and destruction will cease. The aggressor will vanish from the land. In love, a throne will be established. In faithfulness, a man will sit on it, one from the house of David, one who in judging seeks justice and speeds the cause of righteousness. We have heard of Moab's pride, her overweening pride and conceit, her pride and her insolence, but her boasts are empty. Therefore, the Moabites wail. They wail together for Moab, lament and grieve for the men of Kir Hareseth. The fields of Heshbon wither. The vines of Sibma also, the rulers of the nations, have trampled down the choicest vines, which once reached Jazer and spread toward the desert. Their shoots spread out and went as far as the sea. So I weep as Jazer weeps for the vines of Sibma, O Heshbon, O Elele. I drench you, drench you with tears. The shouts of joy over your ripened fruit and over your harvest have been stilled. 
joy and gladness are taken away from the orchards. No one sings or shouts in the vineyards. No one treads out wine at the presses, for I have put an end to their shouting. My heart laments for Moab like a harp, my inmost being for Kir Hareseth. When Moab appears at her high place, she only wears herself out. When she goes to her shrine to pray, it is to no avail. This is the word of the Lord, or this is the word the Lord has already spoken concerning Moab. But now the Lord says, within three years, as a servant bound by contract would count them, Moab's splendor and all her many people will be despised, and her survivors will be very few and feeble. The word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Well, here we find the rejection of an offer of refuge. And again, if you were here with us this last week, we saw an oracle, a strong oracle against Babylon. And by Babylon, referring to all of the nations, any nation that rises up in defiance against God. And we saw there that the, the divine nature of God himself expressed in holy wrath against such defiance. God will punish the proud of the world for rejecting him. But here we get a different angle on the divine nature of God. In this oracle against Moab, we see his divine nature expressed in holy compassion or holy lament. One commentator says this, here we see another side to the Lord, a heart of astonishing sympathy and empathy, compassion and identification with human suffering. The Lord weeps even as he smites. So what is happening in this oracle and why is God lamenting here? Well, Moab was another neighbor of Judah. It was a small region just east of the Dead Sea and the Jordan River. Moab was the last camping ground for the Israelites on their wilderness wandering before they entered into the Promised Land. It was there that Moses died on Mount Nebo, looking on into the Promised Land. And so these Moabites were Israel's neighbors. They were also distant relatives of the Israelites, since Moab was the son of Lot, Uh, who was Abraham's nephew. But they were not good neighbors to Israel or friendly relatives. They were always in constant conflict with Israel. And by the time of Isaiah's day in the 8th century, Moab had become a kind of tributary of Assyria, an alliance. And so they were estranged relatives who had become common enemies of God's people. In the first few verses here, Isaiah describes how Moab was invaded and ransacked, and it says, by the rulers of the nations. It's a bit vague. We're not sure exactly what it's referring to, but perhaps by the Assyrians themselves. So in the aftermath of Moab's crisis, in great tragedy, after great loss in this national tragedy, we find the refugees, fugitives, fleeing from the ruin that laid behind. They were looking for help, and so they sought refuge. And in verses 1 through 4, we hear what could be Moab's cabinet leaders discussing what they are to do after this tragedy. So their leaders come together, and then they send out envoys, messengers, to Zion with lambs as a tribute. So a tribute sent along to Zion, uh, where King David, or the 
Davidic line was, hoping to find refuge and safety under the protective shadow of the Davidic king. They were asking for temporary residence and political asylum in their day. Then in verses 4 through 5, we hear Isaiah's proposed answer to Moab. So look at verses 4 through 5, where he says, The oppressor will come to an end, and destruction will cease. The aggressor will vanish from the land. In love, a throne will be established. In faithfulness, a man will sit on it, one from the house of David, one who in judging seeks justice and speeds the cause of the righteous. So in other words, Isaiah is saying this to the Moabites. Moabites, if you truly want safety and protection, you must come under the throne of God, under his rule. You must come under the house of David in alliance with him, in allegiance with him. You can't just flee to God in your time of need, hoping to find things like food and shelter and then turn back to your old ways. You see, God is freely offering you refuge and salvation, but you must commit in faith and obedience to the Lord and loyal to him, being loyal to him and to his anointed king. That's the offer that Isaiah is presenting here, and that same principle applies to us today. Like the Moabites, sadly, we see that people treat the church as a place of refuge in their time of need. They come to church when their life is overturned by some tragedy, circumstances in their own life or in the world at large, and they come in their desperation looking for resources to build themselves back up again. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. God graciously welcomes, we see, like the Moabites, people into his kingdom who are looking for refuge and help. But the Lord makes this righteous demand upon all people. If you really want safety and protection, you must bow to Jesus as your king and your God. You must find in him your all in all. Don't just come to church for the personal benefits that you might get out of it. Come to church for King Jesus the son of David, who is faithful and true, who speeds the cause of righteousness. Come as you are, yes, in all your needs, but bow to Jesus as your king in your heart and be loyal to him for the rest of your days. You see, God welcomes all to come like the Moabites here. But sadly, how did the Moabites respond to this gracious offer? We see that in verses 6 through 8. We find that in their pride... Moab just cannot submit to God in faith, cannot bow down. Moiter, the commentator, says this, Had they been asked for a higher tribute price, their pride would not, would not have been threatened. It would have been intact. But the simple price of submitting to Zion's king was too high. You see, God wants our wholehearted public allegiance to him profession of faith to him before the world and to his anointed king Jesus but sadly this is too much for some people because their pride is too big they can't come to say that they are in need of saving from sin and death and their conceit holds them back from professing that Jesus is the only way they want to hold on to some of their own pride in the matter they don't want to give all of God or to give to God all of the glory because of their own pride, people like the Moabites would rather sit in ruin. Think of this. People would rather sit in ruin than seek refuge in God's Son. And we read here that God laments 
he weeps over this sad reality in verses 9 through 10. One commentator says, What the Lord visits in holy justice, he laments with holy sorrow. It is we who find tension between God's justice and his love, but the divine nature is one, and all the Lord's attributes are in perfect harmony. He, his tears and theirs are mingled as one. He is no onlooker on the world's sorrows, but a participant in it. And so even though here in this place, in our church, we affirm the sovereignty of God in salvation and in election as taught in the Bible, but also from passages like this, we also affirm that God is grieved by the proud decisions of people choosing death over life, choosing to reject God and sit in their ruin instead of seek refuge in his son. As God says in Ezekiel, he says, do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked? declares the sovereign Lord. Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? See, God is pleased when sinners turn from their ways and live. He is not pleased by them choosing death and their own ruin. He weeps, we see in this text, with great sorrow. And the same applies to you. God is calling you again this morning to turn away from your evil ways and to live in the refuge that he has provided graciously for you through his one and only son. Do not reject his offer of refuge like the Moabites. Now our third part, 17, chapter 17, verses 1 through 11. An oracle concerning Damascus. See, Damascus will no longer be a city, but will become a heap of ruins the cities of Aror will be deserted and left to flocks which will lie down with no one to make them afraid. The fortified city will disappear from Ephraim and royal power from Damascus. The remnant of Aram will be like the glory of the Israelites, declares the Lord Almighty. In that day, the glory of Jacob will fade. The fat of his body will waste away. It will be as when a reaper gathers the standing grain and harvests the grain with his arm, as when a man gleans head of grain in the valley of Rephaim. Yet some gleanings will remain, as when an olive tree is beaten, leaving two or three olives at, on the topmost branches, four or five on the fruitful boughs, declares the Lord, the God of Israel. In that day, men will look to their maker, and turn their eyes to the Holy One of Israel. They will not look to the altars, the works of their hands, and they will have no regard for the Asherah poles and the incense altars their fingers have made. In that day, their strong cities which they have left because of the Israelites will be like places abandoned to thickets and undergrowth, and all will be desolation. You have forgotten God, your Savior. You have not remembered the rock, your fortress, Therefore, though you set out the finest plants and plant imported vines, though, you, though on the day you set them out, you make them grow, and on the morning when you plant them, you bring them to bud, yet the harvest will be as nothing in the day of disease and incurable pain. Word of the Lord. May you continue to add his blessing as we consider it. Well, here, loved ones, Isaiah explains how those who refuse refuge in God like the Moabites, will reap destruction. That is what is coming. But those who take refuge in God, they will survive. At the heart of this passage here, we find the positive result of the remnant believing in God. They survive. 
And in verses 7 through 8, we hear a kind of spiritual revival or awakening that Isaiah describes, saying that their eyes will be fixed on the Holy One of Israel instead of looking to all of their false hopes, false idols that they once looked to. Instead of trying to secure themselves in their life by erecting Asherah poles, lifting them up to sky, these idols, instead of their religious devotion in burning incense up to heaven with their own fingers, works of their own hands, trusting in themselves, instead of that vain religion, Isaiah describes a revival where people will simply look to their maker and turn their eyes to the Holy One of Israel, remembering the God, their God, their Savior. True revivals in history happen when people learn to live from God's place of refuge by his grace instead of trying to win access to God's protection by their works. And we talked about this this past Friday evening in our fellowship where in the book Dane Ortland writes this, there are two ways to live the Christian life. You can live it either for the heart of Christ or from the heart of Christ. You can live for the smile of God or from it for a new identity as a son or a daughter or from it for your union with christ or from it what is he what is he saying what is he describing he's saying basically that you can either try and win god's favor win his smile upon you by doing religious works creating asherah poles lifting them up burning incense or whatever that might be for you performing excellently trying to win his smile upon you or you can do works good works because you know you already have his favor smiling upon you already in Christ. And those two ways are very different. The first way is of works. The second is of grace. And the revival that Isaiah describes here shows us the way of grace. Lay down your evil doing, yes, but also lay down your religious doing, trying to secure yourself. Lay that down as well. Both open sin and pharisaical religion deserve God's judgment. Don't refuse God's offer of refuge. Instead, look by faith alone to your maker. Look to the Holy One of Israel, the rod of refuge who was broken, thrown down into the tomb, but then rose up from the dead victorious and is now conquering every competing power. Jesus will establish God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, don't just go to him for his benefits in the here and the now, for a simple asylum temporarily. No, bow to your maker, your king, in loyal commitment to him. Join his covenant people wherever you live, wherever God places you in his providence. Join his people there and serve him by serving his people. Come alongside us here in this place as we continue, continue abandoning our sinful ways and finding pasture and protection in Jesus alone. Join us as we seek in humility, in repentance and faith, to follow Jesus and honor him who is our King and our Savior. Let us pray. Father God, we recognize again how we are so prone to refuse and deflect your grace in your free gift of salvation that comes to us through Jesus Christ. 
It is hard for us in our pride to embrace our neediness and realize that only you, through Christ's blood and perfect righteousness, through the power of his death and resurrection, only you can bring about the deliverance and the salvation that we so long for. Only you, our maker, can bring us into safe pastures and beside still waters. And Lord, we do ask that you would give us that faith this morning, that we would lay down our evil doing and lay down our religious doing to trust in you and to do good works, not in order to try and gain your favor, but doing good works, knowing that we already have your gracious favor, your smile resting upon us, not because of what we have done by our own hands, but because of what Christ has done through his own obedience until death on the cross. May we live by your spirit to honor and serve him all our days. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Loved ones, let us.